0: Good evening everyone, and uh, just to introduce myself a little more, I'm, I've been a believer for the last 30 years, I was converted as a skinhead off the streets basically, at a bible study of an interchurch youth group, on, uh, they were studying to debate the concept of uh, unconditional election but it left me without a leg to stand on and without a hope, unless God would be merciful to me, so I just asked him if he would please. Um, That was with a group called Young Life, and uh, I've been connected with the work of United Beach Missions ever since. Um, I'm now, as you've heard, the pastor at uh, Milner Evangelical Church, and it was there that our church was accused of incitement to racial hatred. Where we really first uh, sought the assistance of the Christian Institute, and they supported us, giving us legal help, a number of other aids, which really saw us through a, a very a difficult six week period in the church where we were being threatened with up to seven years imprisonment and other things which the police thought they could just uh, throw at us, closing us down, closing our work amongst Asians down. And this was just for giving Christian literature to a Muslim. Um, So we're very grateful for the Christian Institute and it's a great privilege to be here today and uh, to be with you. We're going to read then from the Word of God. And... uh, in John chapter 4 familiar story i'm sure for most of you who are bible readers John chapter 4 Therefore when the lord knew that the pharisees had heard that jesus made and baptized more disciples than john though jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples he left judea and departed again to galilee but he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. The one whom you now have is not your husband, in that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the, w- the hour is coming when you shall neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And at this point his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with the woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say, There are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, Lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this The saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word and then they said to the woman now we believe not because what you said for we ourselves have heard him and we know that this is indeed the Christ the saviour of the world so that is the reading of the word of God I was visiting uh, some overseas students at a village campus, uh, uh, community campus, university campus where I was working and uh, the way I was trying to speak to the students about the things of God, so I went in and bought a meal and my strategy was buy the meal and enjoy it and sit with somebody. So I sat opposite these two students, Sri Lankans. And I had a strategy, I just said, uh, where are you from? They say, Sri Lanka. I say, what are you studying? And they said, uh, agricultural engineering, master's degree level. I said, how are your family? And so on. And then I keep quiet and in the end they say, who are you? (laughs) I said, well, my name is David Harding. And they said, "Uh, what do you do? And I said, I'm a teacher of the Christian faith. That's how I always spoke to overseas students. I'm a teacher of the Christian message. Oh, they said, these two Sri Lankans, oh, that's wonderful. We have a question we we would like to discuss with you. Have you got a few hours to spare? (laughs) I said, yes. What's your question? They said, what is it? that you admire so much about Jesus Christ? Isn't that a lovely question? <laughs> Wouldn't you wish that everyone in this area would be coming up to you and saying, now look, you Christians, what is it that you admire so much about Jesus Christ? It's no wonder they needed a few hours. I, I, I said, thought for a moment and I said, there are just two things. And they said... What? So I said everything that he is and everything that he's done. That's all. All that he is and all that he's done. And if you take that position, it means I, you, you can speak to a Buddhist or a Muslim, Roman Catholic, an atheist, adult, a child. A man, a woman, heterosexual, homosexual, criminal, policeman, queen, commoner. And you can do it with confidence. Because all you you know that you're doing is telling them everything about the Lord Jesus Christ that makes you admire him and more. Everything that he is and everything that he has done. And tonight we're thinking about him as the saviour of the world, the Messiah, the saviour of the world. And if I could begin with some of the application, for many of us, telling other people about our saviour is a little bit of a problem. We somehow think it's a specialist task. That we need to learn many things about for instance, the Islamic faith, or we need to understand postmodernism, whatever that is. I actually don't think it exists, but there we are, we can debate that later. But we think that somehow we have a great deal of things we must learn about them and about their way of thinking to communicate. And the answer is, I want to begin at the end, if you like, and say to you, I'm going to mention things to you that are common to us all, which make it easy for us to bring Christ to the people and to say to them things about him which we admire about him, all that he is and all that he has done. So why can we take this message? Why can we speak to folk? Why can we... Why can we witness to folk and say to them that Christ is the complete saviour that you need? That's really the thing I'm addressing tonight. Why can we say to anyone we meet, Christ is a complete saviour? Three things and then one I couldn't quite fit in so that will come tagged on at the end. The first one is the short one, the second one is slightly longer and the third one is the big one. Why can we speak with confidence to anyone and say, you need this Saviour. He is the Saviour for the world. He is your, he's offered as your Saviour. Three answers. We can say that to anyone because we all have the same parent. Think about it. You open your Bible, you read Genesis chapter 1. You see, I'm not from Hobbit Man, and you are from Neanderthal. It's not that uh, you one time thought you were perhaps a descendant of Piltdown Man before it was found to be a fraud. And uh, someone over there who's a different colour, well, he's actually from a different ape group. Genesis 1 tells us we all have the same parent. We, our blood flows back to Adam. The human race is one race. One of the reasons why uh, things uh, legislation about racism is so, such a misnomer. It's so wrong to do that because we are actually one race. A little more melanin in somebody and he's a little browner than me a little less, and he's a little whiter than me. But we are the same colour, actually. We are the same colour. We're just different shades of it. And we can look back and see we have the same parent, Adam. In fact, we have the same parent in Noah. We look back and we can see that God has created us the same kind, we are of one kind. little more melanin, different colour. Different influences and ways of thinking, different culture. Some values that one person has and their parents have and other parents have different values, different sense of conscience for right and wrong. Brought up with uh, different uh, financial background, different educational skills, different circumstances. But one kind, reproducing after our kind, so that in the end we can look at Eve and say of her, she is the mother of all living. And so we see the foundation of the idea that Christ is the saviour of the world goes back to Adam when we say he is the, Christ is the saviour of the world in this sense that he has come to save men and women and we are men and women. We are not just uh, the different products from different evolutionary processes and different evolutionary branches and it's very important in these days that we affirm this the unity of the human race in Adam that's the first point I said it was the short one so Adam the the reason why we can see Christ as the saviour of the world is because we all have the same parent now the second point is like unto it And it's this, we can speak with confidence wherever we go because we not only have the same parent, we all have the same problem. It's very simple, you won't get much simpler concepts tonight. One of the things that uh, John kindly glazed over is when he said I was in local government, he omitted to tell you that I was a refuse collector and street sweeper for some time. Which meant the men that I worked with uh, didn't often think much higher than their shovels and brushes. And so I learned to think simply. We all have one problem. The human race is one race, but it is one ruined race. We're joined Uh, Paul, the Apostle, draws this out for us, doesn't he, in Romans 5. He tells us that by one man, all sinned, all died, all under condemnation. And he, in verse, chapter 5, verse 14, he says... That is true, even though we don't all sin after the similitude of Adam. And what he's saying is this. Adam came into the world created clean, and he chose from a position of cleanness to become dirty. But you don't sin in the same way, because you came into the world soiled. You don't come neutral. That little baby in your arms is not a neutral, innocent thing. It has a problem because it has a parent in Adam. And therefore it comes into this world with a nature to sin and with original guilt. you see Adam is portrayed to us by the Apostle Paul as acting on behalf of the race and when he fell the race fell now I don't like playing dominoes to be frank with you I think one of the best uses for dominoes is when people with tiny minds uh, stand them up one after the other and see how many thousands of them, trying to break the record of how many thousands they can stand in a row. But, you know, there is something inevitable about the moment when the first one gets toppled, isn't there? The first one when as long as it's not premature, the f- they f- stood up perhaps thousands and thousands, and the, f- the last one maybe several thousand dominoes away from the first one. But when the first one moves and falls against the second, it must go down. And the third and the fourth. And it is inevitable that the last one will fall. When Adam fell, his whole race was in him. You know, we talk about a lot, a lot about the amazing, incredible thought that we were in Christ before the foundation of the world. But the whole concept of being in Christ is about us being in him as his seed, as his generation, as his children, in due time to be born from him as we come to faith in Christ. This whole issue of one man acting for many is the great principle by which you enter into the consequences of the fall just as you by faith enter into the fruits of Christ's Calvary suffering. Because one acts for others as the head of his race. You have a problem. You see, our problem is we have a family tree and its roots are in Adam. And Adam has this disease. And all the sap, as it were, that he draws up flows up to every branch and every leaf and you're there. You have a problem. So that Paul can say when he's writing about this problem he can draw his conclusions in this way. Are we better than they? Not at all. We have previously charged both Jews and Greeks. They are all under sin, as it is written. There is none righteous, the little baby, the innocent person in a far-off country. None righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks after God. They've all turned aside. And when he finishes the whole list, this devastating list that says... We have the same parent, therefore we have the same problem. He concludes it by saying, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. And the idea is not that we, when we hear the Ten Commandments we suddenly become guilty and we were innocent before. The idea is that we become convinced and convicted and declared guilty. That we become aware of it. We have the same problem. We heard, didn't we, over the last couple of days, 40 million people in our world have AIDS, HIV AIDS. 40 million That's regardless of the millions who have died. There are 40 million people living with it. Many of them the victims of rape or of birth. By an intimate act, this disease is passed on from one person to another. But there is just a chance you won't get it. but there is absolutely no chance of any man, any boy or girl coming into this world uncontaminated by the problem of the fall in Adam. Do you remember when Abraham was coming back from his victory and he met Melchizedek? In the New Testament, it says he paid tithes to Melchizedek. And the writer to the Hebrews tells us that Levi, who wasn't yet born, paid tithes in Abraham because he was still in Abraham's loins. Abraham, therefore, acted on behalf of Levi, though Levi was not born, and set a precedent because he was the head of... Of the Jews. And this is a principle. Adam acted and we fell. Many people think that's a bit unfair. But I say unless you can accept it, how can you accept that Christ acted and you rose? How can you you accept it? Adam acts, we collapse. Christ acts for his people and we stand again. So we all have the same parent. We all have the same problem. And here's where we come to look at our Lord. We all have the same promise. Here's the whole human race standing in front of God. There's just two of them. But it's the whole human race. And God says, in my paraphrase, I will send someone. (coughs) To do something that will deal with what you've done. The first promise in Genesis 3.15. I will send someone. And you know for 1600 years that was the only promise that believers had to hold on to. Until Abraham really, there were no further advances on that. To tell us anything about who this someone would be. And what he would do and what he would be like. For 1600 years, faith hung on one sentence from God. I will send someone. Because you cannot cover your own sin. And the whole of the Old Testament begins to portray to us this saving Messiah, this Messiah, this Saviour for the world. Represented in Adam and Eve. A saviour for all who will be saved. Anyone who will be saved must be saved in that promise. And so we read the first five books of the Bible. You know the the Old Testament is a wonderful, it's a very order as we have it today. gives us a wonderful preparation for thinking about who this Messiah will be. You open your Bible, you begin reading it. I hope you read, try to read your Bible through from cover to cover. I hope you've, if you've been converted any number of years, you've managed to get from Genesis to Revelation and uh, read all of the uh, sentences of the Bible. I'm so thankful when I was first converted, I was with a group of folk who made it their annual practice to read The whole Bible in a year just takes 20 minutes a day. And I've done that at least once a year ever since. And I'm so glad for that early influence on me. But you read your Bible and you open at Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. And you're reading a unit of thought. That unit of thought exposes a problem. One of the influences of the fall, a problem sin, we're guilty and polluted because of sin and as we read in those first five books of the Bible we discover that there is a single remedy for this sin, it's guilt and it's pollution and it is a sacrifice the problem is sin, the remedy is a sacrifice And you will know that a man is anointed to offer that sacrifice for sin in those books of the law. And he is the Messiah, the Christ of that Old Testament arrangement to offer a sacrifice for sin so that guilt and pollution will be dealt with. And he's anointed with oil. And he is a priest. And then we read a little further on and we come to the books of Joshua, Judges and Ruth and then Samuel, Kings and Chronicles and Ezra, Nehemiah and Esther. We're in the books of history and here we see culture and conduct of people moving together in nations and we see this problem of sin, the problem of the fall is not just guilt and pollution of sin It's the anarchy and rebellion of spirit. The first problem is sin. The remedy is a sacrifice. And it's mediated by a Messiah, a priest. But then the Bible exposes us to another part of the fall. The problem is anarchy. And so we're hardly into those books of history. Before we are reading, there was no... King. And so everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. A minister once said to me, David, you need to go to funerals more often. I said, No, thank you very much, if you don't mind. He said, No. He said, Why don't you go down to the crematorium and just go into every funeral for a day? He said, You'll learn immense amounts including if you're a little insecure about how well you do in trying to bring at least something helpful, how pitiable most funeral orations are. (coughs) But he said, you won't like it very much because the most common tune that is played in the background or during these ceremonies... Is the f- famous or infamous hymn song, I Did It My Way? It's still the most popular piece of music played at funerals in Great Britain. I Did It My Way. And in the books of Joshua judges Ruth through to Esau and Nehemiah and Esther. That's really what it's about. The problem is anarchy. When you were born, you not only inherited guilt, you not only inherited pollution, but you inherited a nature that's biased, like that ball on crown green bowling, where off it goes and it is weighted, and your nature is weighted. It is fallen and biased, And it is anarchistic. It wants to do things its way and have its own way. And the remedy, of course, as it says in the Psalms and in other places, is that God will set his king. He will impose an authority into that anarchy. And you will know that from Joshua to Esther the great mediator of this controlling authority which God will have over people in order to remedy the influences of the fall among his people is a king. And that king is an anointed king. He is the Messiah. Do you ever think about the chaos and cruelty that come when people have no king in their life. It's chaos, but it's cruel. Self-centeredness is such a cruel business, isn't it? Do you read the Daily Mail? I don't advocate it. I don't take a paper myself, especially when you're on broadband. You can read all the papers for free. But today, 50 babies a year survive abortion. 50 babies a year survive the knife. Front page, should f- it, it speaks of the cruelty when every man does that which is right in their own eyes. And when you read Judges, you see that cruelty But that's only the second problem. The first problem is in the first five books. We have a problem, it's sin. We have a remedy, it's salvation, a sacrifice. How? There is a mediator, it is a priest. The second, we have a problem from Joshua to Esther. We have a problem, it's anarchy. We have a remedy, it's authority. God imposes his king. He's anointed for it then we come to Job and the poetic and teaching books of poetry and then into the prophetic books the teaching books of the Old Testament why are they there? because we do suffer a third major problem in consequence of the fall and it is we are ignorant we are ignorant Paul puts it this way in Romans they knew God verse 19 of chapter 1 But what? Their thoughts became futile, he goes on to say. Why? They did not like to retain God in their knowledge. Man thinks he's come of age, thinks he knows, he understands. God-fearing people are to be despised today, aren't they? In In the recent past, they were mental cases to be tortured under atheistic communism. But today, Bible-believing Christians are to be equated with extreme and fanatical Islamic terrorists. They know, you see. They understand. It's us, poor, ignorant people, who don't. But why do people get into this way of thinking? And the answer Paul gives in Romans 1.28, God gave them over to a debased mind. They didn't want God in their knowledge So what did God do? Sit there thinking, oh, I do wish they would have some nicer thoughts. No. He said, if you want to have the insanity and ignorance of kicking me out of your thinking, you can have it. He gives them over. He positively acts to make people reap the fruits of their choices. You see, the Bible says everybody knows there is a God. Romans 19, Romans 1.19. They know because God has showed it to them. They know there is a God. They know he is good. God did not leave himself without a witness, says Acts 14.17. God did not leave himself without a witness in that he did good. They know he is just the heavens declare the righteousness of god just as there is a they can look and deduce that god is a god of design because of the order of our universe they can deduce that god is a moral god because of our conscience they know there is they know they have sinned in romans chapter 2 verses 14 and 15 It says, they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness between themselves. Their thoughts accusing or else excusing. So these people who say, well, we don't really know. We say, there are some things you do know. You know there's a God. You know he's good. You know he's just. You know you have sinned. You say, we don't know we've sinned. And you say, you've never done anything wrong. He said, well, what is wrong? what is right I have an answer to this I'm afraid for them I'll punch them on the nose if anybody says there's no such thing right, as right or wrong take their wallet or punch them on the nose <laughs> oh it's being recorded <laughs> is that incitement to something Colin I may need your help when. Uh, if anybody really <laughs> listens to this But uh, punch them on the nose. And what will they say? You shouldn't have done that. Why not? Seemed good to me. What's right for me is right for me. And punching you on the nose at this moment seemed right for me. You see, my thoughts, the very fact that when you do wrong, you're looking for an excuse. Or when someone else does wrong, you're maximising the (coughs) accusation. God says that's a very symbol and sign in our spiritual genes that we know there are absolutes and that it's written into us all. But we also know there's a judgment. Romans 1.32 says they know the righteous judgment of God that those who do such things are worthy of death. Another point I'm making is this. The Old Testament is preparing us. It's saying there is a saviour coming. Someone will come to do something, and we say, but what? Well, you are a sinner, and you need a sacrifice. And the one who's coming is a Messiah figure. He will be anointed, and here's a picture of it. And you are an anarchist at heart against the authority of God, and God will impose his authority, and he will anoint a king to do that, to rule you. To subdue you. And you are ignorant. And you need instruction. And the prophets. The whole of those books of the prophets tell us. There is instruction. Inspired instruction. Infallible instruction. And. You can trust. The Messiah. The prophets anointed to bring it. And God makes clear. That the Old Testament. Officers were not good enough. They didn't fill the bill. In 1 Samuel 2 verse 35, God sends a message and says to a priest, you failed, but I will raise up a faithful priest. To the king in Jeremiah, he says, I will raise up a branch to David and he will rule. To the prophets he says to Moses, I will raise up, each time I will raise up a priest, a king, a prophet. And the priest will offer one sacrifice forever. He won't sin, he will never die, he will do the job. And the king will reign and rule until everything is finally brought into subjection to himself. And the prophet will speak, as Hebrews says, all those other prophets with their temporary words and their... Uh, uh, by-temp. This is not an insult to the prophets. Infallible, yes, but in part. But there will one, one day come one who speaks and the full stop will go at the end of the sentence. And that's it. Nothing more. The full stop is there. And the Old Testament closes... And you see the priests, they've got to offer because they're sinners and then they die. And they can't do this task. They are not the someone. And the kings can't even control themselves. And yet they're meant to impose God-given authority over others. They can't do it. They're not the someone. And the prophets have spoken. And yet there's obviously something major missing in what's to be said. They are not the someone. And then at a certain well, there's a woman, and she speaks to a certain someone and says to him, Well, we know that when Messiah comes, when Christ comes, he'll do it. He'll tell us, he'll make everything clear. There'll be no questions after that. That's what she's saying. We're just waiting for the Messiah. The Old Testament and that 400 or so years of silence when people are just saying, when is he coming? And then he comes. We have one problem. We have, sorry, we have one parent. Adam. We have one problem. He fell. And he took us down with him. But we have one promise. Someone, someone will come. And if you know your New Testament, you will now know why, what it is, that we admire so much about Jesus Christ. Is he the prophet? Hebrews says... Oh, at sundry times, in diverse manners, in former times, different people spoke to our fathers. God spoke to our fathers through those prophets. But now, now, he has spoken. And the very tense itself demands that we accept that this is the final word he has spoken by his son. He is our prophet. And Hebrews goes on to say, yes, they sinned and they had to offer for themselves and they offered sacrifices and even the sacrifices they offered, they had to keep coming back so that every time you came back with that sacrifice and said, I'm here again, put your hands on it, associate yourself with it, admit your guilt and the sins you've committed and then watch as that sacrifice goes in and what you're seeing is a substitution for yourself because that animal is now you and it's going in, and that's what would happen to you if you were to go before God as you were. And you stand away from it, and you are safe. But the animal is not safe, it's you. It's in danger, and it dies. It's a substitute. And every time you come, you're just reminding yourself <coughs> sin has not yet dealt with. That's all you're doing when you come. You're saying, it's a temporary arrangement because I've got to come back and I've got to keep coming back. Well, when Christ comes, it says, he offered one sacrifice for sin forever. He sat down, that's it, full stop, at the end of the issue of sin. You may have sins you can't remember. God knows them and they're dealt with. Worse, you may have sins you can't forget. And the immense blessing is that God does not call them to mind. They're covered and they're dealt with because he has offered one sacrifice for sin forever so that when you come again to communion and you break bread, you're not remembering sin, you're remembering a saviour. It's dealt with. And he also subdues all things. To himself, he's the king. Colossians tells us he subdues all things to himself. That king could control himself. He he wasn't like Adam, full up and surrounded by a paradise at his strength with a devil that's only just a novice tempter come to present him with an offer. Now we see a man who is skin and bone in a wilderness starving with a devil who is well practiced and he controlled himself and he stands as the king who because he can control himself can control me he can deal with me he can deal with you He can subdue you and the anarchy of your heart. He is the saviour completely. For all mankind and for all that man is. For all that you are. Now I said we would start at the end and arrive back at the beginning. Well I don't quite know where we are in terms of the end at the beginning but you know that woman said to our Lord when the Messiah comes that's it and he said he's here and she just went straight away and she went round to the people and she said he's here he's come the complete remedy the one with the answers he's here she didn't go to Bible college to learn how to say he's here did she? she didn't she didn't think now I about my culture let me think about my culture how can I best communicate to my culture (laughs) her message was this what you've learned tonight We have three problems. We are sinners. We are anarchists. And we are ignorant. But the remedy is here. And all we are saying to our neighbours, all we are doing as we go around and witness to them, is we are saying, he's here. He's here. Thank God he's here. Let's pray. And so we ask you, our God, to reflect on the amazing truth that there is a complete remedy for all mankind and for all that man is. And how we praise you for the Lord Jesus. Such a complete answer. And we do indeed. Thank you, our God that he is here and that he has been to the cross and he has done once and for all what all that bloodletting previously could never accomplish. We thank you that he is here and he can subdue our rebellious spirits to himself. And we thank you that he is here to teach us and to instruct us in the way that we should go and we pray that you will help us so that in our witness we will never forget the simplicity of what we are saying that he is indeed here Amen
1: (coughs) Thank you David David said he's prepared to content to answer questions, if you've got them, I'm just going to give you a few minutes. If we can just be quiet for a moment, reflect on what we've heard, and to prepare in our minds. Any questions you might want to put to him, I guess, about anything you like? Yes, sure. <laughs> Within reason. Indeed. He's here, but we don't find it easy to talk about. Questions? I've had to struggle in all the previous meetings to extract questions. There's at least one person who's come tonight I know I won't have a problem with, I hope. But I won't name him yet. (laughs) Bartholomew, thank you. Um,
0: Have you got any tips on witnessing to family and work colleagues?
1: Did you hear the question? (laughs) Tips... For
0: witnessing to family and work colleagues uh, well, as one who, when I witnessed to my work colleagues uh, I, I, I have to tell you that I was assaulted more as a refuse collector than I was as a policeman, and it was always about our witness and concerning the Lord, so whether I was a, a good witness or a bad witness i don 't know. I always found that uh, people were were more aware of my Christian convictions than I appreciated. They told filthy jokes, for instance, on one occasion, and uh, I didn't laugh, and the chap in the room was about to assault me uh, for not laughing at his jokes. And uh, uh, some of his uh, colleagues jumped on him, and I said uh, to him, what's wrong, Danny? I said, why so hot? He said, you're always preaching at us. And I said, uh, I thought for a while and thought, I couldn't remember the last time actually I had. So I was feeling a bit guilty that he had made an unjust accusation. I said, "Um, could you just tell me the last time, please? And then he said, you won't laugh at our jokes. And I said, well, let's have a deal. When you stop telling jokes to make me like you, I'll stop preaching to make you like me. Uh, In terms of home, I think the Word of God gives us a very good principle, which is that we are to speak. We have a duty to explain why we are what we are. But we have a greater duty to be what we are and allow that to be the winning influence where other things fail. Be a good witness for the Lord Jesus, kindness, do you wash up, do you keep a tidy room, you know as a son I'm now speaking, does a son speak, does a, do you keep a tidy room, do you ever offer that your mum or dad or both, you know, that they should go out for a meal at your expense somewhere nice, do you know, are you kind and courteous and these other things that are, are they are winning things that show something has changed. I'm ashamed that in my early days after conversion, my mother and father thought, because I always just wanted to be at meetings. They, it was as if I was bad before, but now I was bad in a different way. I was not a good son. And so I say, at work, you just have to go for it, I think. If they can talk about football on Monday morning, why can't you talk about Christ? Eh? I don't think we should be pussyfooting and and a bit held back over this. If they're all about football and Georgie Best and all the rest of it and these other things, because if there's something like a a terrorist or a tsunami, oh, they'll be down your neck then. Well, how can you believe in a god? Well, can you only witness when it's on when the ball's in their court and that you they think you they've got you on the back foot? I think we just have to go for it, and speak with folk and uh, tell them. Tell them. But we. The, I, I don't think we should be complicated. He's here. He's come. The one that the human need must have to be saved. He has come. There is hope if you will trust him. You know, it's very simple, isn't it?
1: Do you want to come back on that, Balthamil?
0: Um, just to say, it's, what you say is right. I agree with what you say, absolutely. Um, it's just made more difficult when you know that's right, but you haven't done it. <laughs> <laughs> Can
1: you Sorry. explain that again, please?
0: Well, it's just made more difficult when you know you should have done that, and you've sat in a, in a room with somebody for two years, and you never said anything to him. Or you've you've gone round to your grandma's house for sort of 23 years and you never said anything to her? Well, pray for a specific opportunity. Um. If you're praying for somebody, you will look for an opportunity. If you're not praying for them and just going in, uh, we've said to our son, I said to my son, every job that comes on your table, pray that God may prosper you in it like Joseph so that you are a blessing to your employer, one area of one area of witness to your employer, pray that God will make you successful in what is given to you as a responsibility, and that it may redound to the honor of your employer or your immediate supervisor. It's one area, but if you're looking for ways of explaining the gospel, please pray about it. Um, if you've ever do you know the name Mike Meller here? Mike Meller. Yes, Mike Meller. He mission. open air mission and uh, working in London. Convert- he was a heavy yeah, drinker, yeah. worked in a newspaper office and at night, he was a social drinker, then became an alcoholic. And he was just in in his life was in ruin, but into his office came a very young, immature, scared Christian. And that Christian just began to speak to him. And Mike Meller has been, uh, well, a most godly influence. What a surprising thing. An alcoholic, aggressive against the gospel, terrible at home, transformed because some pathetic little young fella, green round the gills or whatever you get green round these days, but he's sitting there and he's just trying to mumble something and it somehow it connects. And he actually said to him one day, why don't you ask God to help you? I mean, how many of us have said that to people, but what Mike Meller then did was he didn't answer the fellow, but got up, went to a cubicle in the washrooms, closed the door, and said, "Oh God, if you can do something." He was converted that very day because some in, in an office, a fella looked at him and said, "You need, you need what I've found. He's here. You know. Have a go, pray."
1: Sorry Thank you for coming <laughs> back <row>.
2: um, <clears throat> Can I first of all say thank you, Dave, for the, um, the instruction. Um, it seems to me you are reminding us all very helpfully that there is a sufficient <coughs> sufficient testimony in conscience, in creation, uh, all around us that God really is there, and we needn 't. Mess around or bother with trying to work through postmodernism and various different cultural trends and uh, ways of thinking. Could you just comment, please, um, about the place of apologetics in evangelism? Is it a viable uh, route? Is it a worthwhile line to take? And to what extent should it feature in the
1: place of apologetics in, in evangelism? Yeah. Can you explain what you mean by apologetics? Just for the sake of others. Okay. Explaining the
2: reasonableness of what we believe and the, the sense in which it, it fits and it is, uh, it's propositionally true.
0: Yes. Uh, well, there are two major approaches that have been taken in history, aren't there? There is the apologetic road, which is that you reason. And For instance, this is one of the arguments of apologetics. Because I can conceive a being greater than myself, there must be one. That's a simplified edition of it. The other approach taken is what's called presuppositionalism. You didn't come here for this, did you really? (coughs) And it is this. I make an assumption when I'm speaking to you and my assumption is this. You know already. I make that assumption. Why do I make it? This book tells me there are five things you know. You know there's a God, you know he's good, you know he is just, you know you have sinned and you know there's a judgment. The Bible tells me that. Therefore it is my presupposition and I affirm that to you and your conscience witnesses to it and struggles and wriggles and rationalizes. And you get hostile. And I affirm it to you. And I, in the context of that, I affirm something else. That there is a remedy. And that remedy is in Christ only. You see? Apologetics. There, there are two, really, two strands to apologetics today. One is what we may call total rational, arguing in the logic, giving logical arguments like, um, well, I won't go into any more of them, but there's, there's a whole raft of arguments that are meant to say there must be a God because of this. But there is another form of apologetic that's being used today. For instance, Christ, uh, creation ministries. They come along and they say, not Where there's a design, there must be a designer. But because our God is intelligent, because the God of the Bible is intelligent, that's why you find DNA, intelligence, in the single cell. In other words, there's a a different approach to apologetics uh, in which we say, this is evidence, irrefutable evidence, to the existence, not of a God, but of the God of the Bible. All right, And I think you must make, I would make a distinction between these two. One says, let me give you an argument. What came first, the chicken or the egg? All right? But you see, the problem with the human mind is this. It's a deceitful mind. And so for every argument you think up, they've got another argument that says, therefore, there isn't a God. I mean, my, my, my only attempt at apologetics is to say to somebody, prove to me there is no God. Think about it. Prove it. To prove it, you've got to know everything. To prove it, you've got to be everywhere. And to prove it... <laughs> you've got to be God you see you've got to have the attributes of God else you cannot prove there is no God if you see what I mean now that's the sort of thing that apologetics tries to do it sounds clever but atheists are clever too and the point is we declare to the conscience of man that which God tells us is there we have an ally in every fallen man and we need to preach our message that he has come at last to that ally and let them fight within themselves against what God has put there that, that's Steve is that, is that are we just bad at anything? bad at apologetics no
2: bad at, bad at doing that kind of thing Is that <laughs> the, the fact that the church is in such a state today and a, um, people
0: not coming to faith can you all hear that yes. is is st- Steve is saying is are we in a bad state today because we're bad at it? But I, I ask you, who says we're in a bad state? There are more Christians in the world today than there were people alive in the first century.
2: In our country, are we
0: not In the Western world? Yet we can say we're in a post Christian era. And we can use all this type of language. Uh, but all over the world. We are doing exactly what our brothers and sisters are doing elsewhere, aren't we? We're not doing it any worse. We're probably not doing it any better, though it is our view that we do do it better. But the point is we're probably not doing it any worse nor any better. But at this time, we don't know why God is not pleased to bring in a harvest and to raise standards and to make us influential, do we? And some people try and say, well, we need a revival. Now, I won't get down, go down that line, but if you know anything about revival, you'll know one thing, and that is how very short-lived most of them were. Yeah.
1: And then a the question over here as well. It's not a question really, just comment. a comment. Yes, um, just the wonderful account of that newspaper man who was converted because of that young Christian I think sometimes we all think, oh, I didn't say that very well, or you don't feel as if you've had an impression. But you hear stories like that, and it's evidence time and time again that it's God who worked in that newspaper man's heart because of that young lad taking that time to say his faltering words. So sometimes maybe when we don't think we haven't done very well for the Lord we think, well, I could have said that better or I didn't take that opportunity as well as I could have done, you just don't know, do you, no, how you the don't. Lord uses what you've said. I think
0: that is an excellent point to make and uh, to illustrate it. When we were in Flitwick in Bedfordshire, um, a, a friend of ours there, I forget how, what relative it was, but somebody died very close to them mm-hmm. and a sister rang up this Christian woman and said, all right, where are they? Just like that. Where are they? And the answer was, of course, well, you know, you don't know what happens in the last hours of life and whether they turn. And, well, you know, that's not likely to happen. Ah, but it's not likely, so the argument goes, but it's possible. And this, uh, this woman was fighting. And she said, but you know, you know, they never thought about God and they, where are they? And in the end, Pat had to say, well, they are in, in hell. slam went down the phone six months later that woman was converted and that was a decisive thought to her that a christian had answered a question at last bluntly and said it kindly but firmly that's what the bible says no
1: you know, to make the other person feel
0: all right, can you? I'm sure, but I'm sure another thing is, is true is this, that you wouldn't have, had you been on a how-to-witness course, mm-hmm. you wouldn't have been given the advice in the end to say she's gone to hell. Mm-hmm. You see? We may think we've done very badly. I could, I could come here, I could give a many, many accounts of where people thought they did utterly the wrong thing a fellow in uh, an open air missioner who was door knocking one night and he said to me, what, what do you say to people, he says, says he to me, what do you say when people say to you, oh I'm not interested? I said say, you'll be interested, you, you, you'll, be, you'll be interested uh, when it come your time to die, you'll want a minister at your funeral, won't you? I said to him, well I'm not thinking that the next person who said it to him <laughs> That's exactly what he said. On that occasion, all that happened was he was chased halfway down the street. <laughs> <laughs> However, the point is the point I'm driving at is we don't know whether we're doing badly or well. You know, what the Lord says you get in a tight fix, don't make big plans how you're going to answer, God will assist you. And you may think you've done very badly, but even the manner in which you hesitatingly and very badly try to get the words out may be a profoundly deep spiritual experience for somebody else who looks and sees all the difficulties you're having to express yourself and to be honest, and they're moved by these things, you see, as you seek to express truth.
1: Question.
0: I was just wondering, sort of, how do you witness to people who think they are Christian because I've got a very good friend who would call herself a Christian to anyone who asked but <coughs> if you saw her out on a Friday night completely out of her mind drunk and then going off with her boyfriend later you well you wouldn't think that she was and through her example that like, even more people think they're Christian because they see what she does and so it's hard to try and tell her about the gospel when she thinks she's doing it.
1: How do you witness to people who believe themselves to be Christians? Yeah. Who
0: suspect yes. Um, when my brother is a minister in uh, Birmingham, and uh, when he was uh, much younger, he, he thought he had become a Christian. He rang me up one day and told me he'd become a Christian. He started telling me about Christian. His Christian life. And I said to him, But Phil, you, you've not mon- mentioned once the word repentance. You have not mentioned once how you value the fact that Christ took your punishment on the cross. All you've had is some kind of experience. He was converted through a charismatic group. And he thought he'd really got it, he even gone up onto the higher level and left me behind, as it were. And I just kept saying to him, Phil, I'm sorry, whatever's happened to you, it is not what this book calls conversion. It isn't. And, and he couldn't stomach that. He was very offended. He kept away from me, wouldn't come to me, wouldn't speak to me uh, for a long time. It'd be very general, but I would always say, but Phil, you've got to come past this position. You've got to understand that you must repent And put your trust in what Christ did at the cross. And when you've got it, that will be everything to you. And then, again, sorry, I say six months, but you know I really mean a long time afterwards. Some time later, he rang me up and he said, Dave, it's your brother, Phil. I said, hi, Phil. He said, no, Dave, it's your brother, Phil. I said, oh. And and it happened. You know, if I'd have just said, "Great, Phil, let's let's try and take you and assume you are a Christian and try and now get you really there," I said, "No, you're not." And he had to confront that. That everybody around him was saying, "You are. In fact, you're a super Christian. You've had it." And and that there was there was somebody saying, "You haven't even begun. You've misunderstood the whole bit." Um, and I think we have to say that to people, especially in this day where it is common for Christians to drink and disco and dance and uh, watch all manner of DVDs that are unsuitable for human consumption. People are doing it, calling themselves Christians, and we need to be able to say that where is the spirit of sorrow for sin and repentance in these lifestyles that are coming out? We need to affirm a, that repentance is the foundation of a life of holiness.
1: Mr. Hagel. Stranger silent, but breaking the silence
2: tonight. Thank you. Thank you. In the world, but not of the world, mm-hmm. and yet I hear Christians of all different ages saying, I don't know when I last had contact with a non-Christian. I'm not involved with non-Christians. <laughs> what advice would you give to a Christian who was in that
0: uh, thank you. What advice to people who, uh, who, who somehow don't, are not making their contacts with non-Christians? Well, there are many ways in which we ha- can have contact with unbelievers. One simple way is at the beginning of every day to put into your pocket one or two Christian leaflets. I walk 500 metres from my house to my church. I walk it twice a day, probably on average, uh, uh, a number of days a week. And in my pocket, just a few Christian leaflets. And any day I want to, I can have contact with non-Christians. And because I walk the same route, I often have contact with the same non-Christians who have started to say to me, Hello, Mr. Harding, on your walkabout again? They know I'm out to nobble people. That is to have a conversation with them on better things, by the way. That was a paraphrase. But here I am trying to speak with people, and these are people I wouldn't ordinarily have any contact with at all unless I went where they go in the ordinary concourse of life. That's one way. Another way is if you like fitness things, join a gym and go and there'll be non-Christians there who are talking about all and sundry types of things. You do not have to go to a nightclub to meet non-Christians. And when you go there, Colette and I, Often had to uh, pick up our sons on a Saturday evening. It required us to drive past the nightclub area of Rochdale on the way back. And you need to have uh, something on your glasses so that you look, let your eyes look straight on. Because the way people go dressed for nightclubs is not a way which encourages me to witness quite the contrary. It makes things run through my mind that drive out any thought of God, and people are going there for other things. You try all, all I can say is, if you, for the people who think they can find non-Christian contacts, there is, I, I'm. This is tongue-in-cheek. Try it. Get your tracts, put them in your pocket. Pay at the door the fee to go into your nightclub. And go round saying, here's a Christian leaflet about the Lord Jesus Christ. Alright, it won't work. There are many so simple ways for us to meet people. There are old people's bungalows in every village. Full of lonely people. If you want to meet non-Christians, go there. Alright, there are people just longing... I go, when I go, have gone and visit n- non-Christian old people, sometimes their family members come. One of the most wonderful, wonderful compliments ever paid was one day when I was visiting an old lady and she said to me, you know, I said to my daughter the other day, Mr Harding's been to see me. And the little girl, the little daughter said, do you mean Mr Harding the Christian? when she said that I was full of thankfulness to God that I had a reputation David Harding the Christian what a wonderful reputation I, I mention it so that you might see there are ways for you to get a reputation and to have influence and meet people very ordinary ways you don't have to use the excuse I'm going down the pub or I'm going to a disco and You know, if we all leave the discos, think how bad they'll become. If if no Christians ever go to discos, think how bad they will become. And pubs too. Well, it's a joke, isn't it? It's a sad joke because that argument is used by people or similar arguments as an excuse for the fact they actually like these places. How can they like them and still have the spirit of Jesus Christ in them?
3: Uh, mr Harding i was moved to hear of the support that our friends here uh, gave you i' mm. uh, very very moved to hear that and uh, encourage you um, I hope they 've encouraged you oh, to yes. keep keep going um, uh, you 've encouraged all of us to to think that all of us can be witnesses, mm. you know however what lack of expertise we have in particular things but uh, surely there is isn 't it the difference between a witness and Someone with some gifting for evangelism, because you know, if you take Paul, he did use different cultural approaches. You know, you think when he went into the synagogue and reasoned from the scriptures, and then on, you know, in the Areopagus, it was a, it was a, it was a different culturally sensitive approach. You know, we can i know—we can't all be like him, and we should do it anyway. But nevertheless, you know, there is a place for further training and development, isn't there? For at least for some.
0: I think the main problem we face today is that people, f- that the impression we have that the expert, uh, that we need experts at these things before we can be of any value, really. All the rest of us are just sort of um, uh, tickling for minnows instead of throwing in the net for big fish. You know, we're just playing around with little sticks with nets on the end of them and what I'm saying is no, no in fact sometimes uh, I think that anyone who's been to Bible College will know that some of the things they learned there actually were really of no value whatever in meeting Joe Smoke on the street and talking to him in real language that he could understand communicating with him in other words their education became, can become a hindrance to ordinary communication about things that you've read in this book that have filled up your heart and therefore you want to convey them to others. That's the best way to learn and there is no better way to learn than by doing. What is the sad thing is that many people who teach on preaching and witnessing have not done over much of it and... Uh, uh, it is far better for us each day to have a goal. I don't know if you have this goal, but to have a goal that you, won't, you want the sometime during that day to say something to someone about the Lord. Say something, however small, to give a piece of literature at a garage when you're filling up with petrol or if you go shopping, there's the person behind the till to just pass something to them. You know, these other areas where you have to stand up and give a reasoned witness, well, I would think there are very few of us that move in such high circles. Most of us just meet ordinary men and women on the street and we just talk to them like we talk to everybody and when the issue of the things of God comes up, we try and say to them, you've got a problem, but I know a man who can. You see, I've got an answer and the answer is not in me, it's, it's I've found the answer and I'm a signpost just pointing and saying, because that's what we are as Christians, just signposts saying, there's the person, there's the Lamb of God, there's the person who can deal with you. I've been, I've been to the European Missionary Fellowship School of Theology, I've tried to do a degree at uh, the Evangelical Theological College of Wales and uh, I have nothing more to say about training than that. (laughs) (laughs) Everything I learned, I learned in Speaker's Corner at London with the Young Life UBM group that goes there every year or on beach missions or in the open air at Bedford under John Howard's statue or walking the streets or knocking on doors, I learned it there by thinking, I made a right mess of that. (laughs) You know, what is the way to, to really reply to that sort of sentences, And then it became part of me and the way that I always now respond to these sorts of things. It's learning by the steady plod of reading the Bible and every day having some sort of policy that you will at least try to say something valuable for the Lord to someone.